Hi, I'm Peggy. And I'm Dave. And this is Amped. Hey, Dave, how are you today? Great, Peggy. How are you? I am doing well, thank you. Uh, Last few weeks left of summer vacation, and then everybody will finally be out of my house, except for one. (laughs) Two out of the three will be gone for the day. Good luck with that. Yeah, I know. It's really pathetic that I'm counting down. Not at all. Not at all. I'm excited for this podcast, Peggy. I am very excited for this podcast. Do you want to tell people why or shall I? You shall. So in today's podcast, we actually are interviewing Nicole Verkailen. Did I say that correctly, Nicole? Yep, perfect. Nicole was the very first NAAOP fellow. Um, So I'm really excited to to learn about her experiences and to learn her story and what she hopes to uh, give back. She's given back a lot to the limb loss community already. Um, So she's going to talk about that, talk about NAAOP and the fellowship experience, as well as her future plans. Yes. And, uh, you know, for those of you who are are maybe saying, what is the NAAOP fellowship? Because this is the first podcast you've listened to. Well, go back and look at our archives and you can find uh, Peggy's and my podcast about the NAAOP fellowship, generally what it was. Nicole will fill you in if you don't know and you don't want to go back and listen to that one. But this is a fellowship uh, that is targeted at creating the next generation of advocacy leaders in the world of orthotics and prosthetics. And Nicole was the first recipient of the fellowship and um, did some really interesting, great work. But before we get there, Nicole, um, why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself? You know, where were you born and um, how did you enter the world of limb loss? Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you, Dave and Peggy, so much for having me on today. And I'm super excited to share my story and also my experience Uh, with uh, NAAOP. So uh, my kind of limb loss journey dates back to when I was 10 years old and I was diagnosed with osteosarcoma. And uh, we had to make the difficult decision to amputate my leg really to save my life. And, you know, I'd always been an active kid. Um, You know, six months later, I was back on the soccer field playing with my friends and, um, you know, just being athletic again as a kid, as, as all kids are. Um, but, you know, some of the challenges that I faced, you know, right off the bat that now looking back on, I hadn't realized. Um, but when I was given my first prosthesis, it, it wasn't waterproof. Although that summer, you know, after I'd finished up chemo, that was kind of the main thing I wanted to get into was playing in the water with my friends and, you know, had to kind of sit on the sidelines and that kind of, um, also happened in gym class as I became more active my my feet started to my foot would break um and it would take you know put me on the sidelines for a couple weeks at a time and I think my family and I just kind of accepted that that's how it was and uh you know eventually I went on and I uh, went to the University of Michigan for school and I majored in business and uh, I remember at one point in uh, college I took an entrepreneurial studies course, and at the same time, I was having a new leg built, and uh, it was just taking so much time, and I felt like I didn't really have a say in what I was, um, in what leg I was was being given, and so that kind of was my first kind of introduction to, okay, maybe there's there's some some work that could be done here or, or things that could be changed. 
Uh, and I had also, once I got into the University of Michigan, really started to elevate my athletic potential. And I started doing 5Ks and 10Ks and half marathons and triathlons. And I ended up starting and uh, placing in my age group and, you know, winning first place. And I was so excited. Um, but as I became more uh, physically fit and started uh, doing all these different races and activities, my foot was just wearing down a lot faster. Um, and something that was supposed to last three years or five years was breaking every six months. And I realized, wow, this, this isn't sustainable. And uh, went to my prosthetist and said, hey, like, can we design a new leg that will, uh, you know, withstand the amount of physical activity I want to do and help me reach my goals? but also be covered by insurance. And, you know, 26 appointments and a year later, I ended up with the exact same technology that I'd had for the past five years. And that was a really frustrating experience for me. I had, got, you know, blown through all of my sick time. I was working at the University of Michigan at that point. And it was a very, you know, mental, emotional, physical process as anyone who's an amputee listening to this knows. I mean, it's it's a challenging process to go through getting a new a new leg or arm. Um, and so I, I finally uh, was like, I know what, I wanna do something about this. And I had seen, you know, other amputees come into the clinic at the University of Michigan and saw that some had access to certain types of technologies while others didn't. And so I started just asking a lot of questions and asking, you know, why? And uh, what I found was that, uh, you know, some people in the state of Michigan, because it's a no-fault auto insurance state, those who had lost their limb in an auto accident uh, were covered under auto insurance and uh, were covered basically at whatever they wanted. Uh, same thing with workers' compensation. And so what I found was that there was kind of a higher standard of care for amputees depending on what type of insurance you fell under. And it, it, it seemed like, wow, this, is, this isn't fair. And uh, what I realized, too, is that in New York, they had passed kind of this one limb for life uh, legislation, which eventually was able to get overturned. But I realized that there is something much larger at play here, something bigger than just you know, my inability to access uh, uh, an activity-specific prosthesis, but that there were amputees across our country that were challenged in, in accessing things as basic as a walking prosthesis. And so I felt compelled to, to take part and, and do something about it. Um, and so I kind of took on the biggest risk of my life. I know I'm 26, so it was a, it was a good time to do it. But I, I quit my job and recruited my family and decided that I was going to do a 1,500-mile triathlon down the West Coast. So Nicole, before we before we get into the triathlon, I want to I want to make sure that Peggy and I this is a great summary of sort of how you got into this world um, and why you're so passionate about what it is that you're doing. And I I, I want to go back. I want to kind of unpack a, a bunch of stuff that you've brought up before we get to this really interesting decision you made and journey you took literally down the Pacific coast. Um, you know, in the last year or two. So, uh, Peggy, you want to jump in with, with some questions here? I do. Uh, can we clarify for the listeners, Nicole, what level amputation you have? Yeah, so it's, it's my left leg, and I'm a below-knee amputee. Okay. Awesome. 
Dave, you want to take the next one? Sure. So, you know, one of the things, you know, and and I think it's natural to do it, uh, given sort of where you are in your life. But you you, know, you said at 10 years old, uh, you know, I, I was diagnosed with cancer and it was it was amputate or survive, basically. And so we made the decision to, to amputate. And yet, you know, there's a lot of emotional trauma that that is associated with that, I suspect, um, both on the perhaps on your part. I don't want to speak for you, but certainly with respect to your parents. And then you've got to integrate yourself back into a school world uh, with young kids who, you know, not, aren't necessarily uh, at that age, the most understanding people. Um, so talk a little bit about just sort of how the decision affected you, how the decision affected your parents, what was your involvement in it at that young age? And then maybe a little bit about your reintegration back into um, everyday life in school. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, the decision to amputate uh, was definitely a difficult one. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to be, um, I was living in, in Rochester, Minnesota, where the Mayo Clinic is. And so I had some a really fantastic care team and oncologists who uh, were on the cutting edge of uh, a lot of the um, chemo treatment that I was on and also uh, kind of the best treatment to help someone who has osteoporosis survive. But you know, it was challenging, too, in the sense that um, my parents are divorced, and they, they got divorced when I was you know, young, about a year old, and they had differing opinions on uh, what should be done. And so basically the options that were, were given to us were amputation or limb salvage. And based on where the tumor was located uh, in my leg, um, and also the story in terms of finding my tumor is kind of um, a miracle in a sense where I was on my way to a softball game with my mom and we were running late and my mom told me to, you know, grab, you know, grab your glove, grab your stuff and go run down, the, you know, go run out to the field. And so I ended up uh, running kind of down this hill and tripping and falling and spraining my left ankle. And so they took me in uh, to get an x-ray and that's how they found this this egg-sized tumor. Um, and so eventually it had my care established at the Mayo Clinic. But um, based on where the tumor was located, it was very close to the growth plate uh, of my foot. And so um, doing a limb salvage was going to be pretty tricky. Um, and there was a higher chance that the cancer could come back. And uh, based on what my uh, doctors uh, recommended to me at the Mayo Clinic was that, you know, you're going to have a better quality of life if you have an amputation than if you were to do limb salvage because um, of, you know, the chances of you having to do revision surgeries later on and just where prosthetics are now, it's advanced a lot and you're going to be able to get back out there with your friends and, and continue playing. Um, but it, it was a difficult decision. My dad was very much on the side of, you know, no, there's no way that we can do amputation. And my mom was very much on the side of, you know, no, let's listen to the doctors and take their recommendation. And what I was really fortunate uh, about the Mayo Clinic and the team there is that they involved me in every conversation um, and gave, you know, as a 10 year old, you know, they told me what the risks were. They told me what was going on. They explained it to me. And at the end of the day, they told my parents, you know, this is Nicole's decision. And so I remember um, 
you know, just processing all the information, uh, kind of doing a little bit of the research myself. And, you know, I just flat out told my parents, you know, I'm ready, I'm ready for an amputation. Like I, I want to live a, you know, a healthy and vibrant life. And if we need, if that's what we need to do, then that's what we're going to do. And, um, I mean, up until even the surgery, it was, it was still really difficult. Cause I remember, you know, I had made the decision, like basically my leg was kind of dead to me at that point. You know, I think mentally I had processed that I was going to lose it and I was ready for it. But even on the day of the day of the amputation, you know, I was really scared. And, um, my, I remember my, my dad was, you know, also just really questioning the decision right up until the end. And he kind of stopped the doctors and said, Nope, you know, we've got to do an x-ray uh, to make sure the tumor is still there. Cause he, you know, he's um, you know, very religious. And, and meanwhile, the doctors are like, no, you know, of course it's still there, but you know, they, they uh, went through with it we had an x-ray and yes, the tumor was still there. And so then we had the amputation and uh, you know, right away, you know, I, I went to the St. Mary's children's hospital there in Rochester I was on the children's wing and just a couple, I had one of those um, casts that has, I think it's like an iPop cast, which has like a little metal component on the end. And so, yep, yep uh, and had a foot attached and was, uh, you know, eventually within a few days or maybe it was a week, uh, was putting weight and was weight bearing on it and slowly kind of getting used to what that was going to feel like. And I uh, just remember kind of being handed my first prosthesis. There really wasn't any part of it that I had a say in in choosing what it was going to look like or, you know, what foot was on it or really, in it, you know, I, I guess I was still young at that point, but it was a totally different experience than, you know, the amount of detail and uh, kind of uh, care plan that was given by my oncologist versus what I ended up um, kind of doing. Uh, receiving from the prosthetic realm. Nicole, how did your, your classmates, cause you were that 10 years old is a really hard age. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of changes going on with, with the 10 year old realm. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about my 12 year old two years ago. Um, how did your classmates react to not only the cancer diagnosis, but to you coming back to school without your biological leg? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, I was at the time going to a, a really small town school in Iota, Minnesota, and, you know, I had about 80 kids in my grade. And so in that sense, you know, there were some benefits of it being a really small school because it was very centered on community. Um, and from the very beginning, my fifth grade teacher um, was so supportive and, you know, we had like a hat day for Nicole where everyone in the school wore hats. And so everyone was, um, you know, involved in, in what the process was going to be and kind of was given updates on what I was going through. But, you know, I do remember there were, you know, some issues and some challenges with, you know, certain comments that kids would say, especially as I was going through the process of, you know, getting back up and walking again. I mean, it's a, it's a difficult process. You know, I went from being in a wheelchair to then being using crutches to then using a cane. And I, I remember when I got to the cane stage, you know, as a 10 year old, you know, some kids kind of made fun of me as being like a grandma, 
but you know, I kind of just shook it off and, you know, I knew that, you know, I want to be active again and this is just kind of how it is. And I had a really great core group of friends who actually, uh, right after my amputation and they'd visited me in the hospital all the time, but they came, uh, to my hospital right after my amputation and we had like wheelchair races down up and down the halls. And so they were, they were so supportive. Um, but I think, I think part of it too, at that age, um, was kind of my own mental block of what I thought I could do. And I remember my parents really having to encourage me to, you know, get back on a bike again, to, you know, play soccer, to do all these things. And I remember when my parents enrolled me in soccer, literally the next fall after my amputation, I kind of like think back on it now and I'm like, wow, out of all the sports they could have enrolled me in, they, you know, enroll me in the one that requires me to use my prosthesis. Um, right. <laughs> I'm like, is this a cruel joke or what? Um, but no, I mean, that was so critical and so important to have someone that was going to push me, you know, outside my comfort zone and say, you know, Nicole, you, you can do this. you got to try it and kind of get back into it. And I think for me, you know, it took a long time. I mean, even still to this day, I mean, I feel like over the past year, I've really unleashed a lot of what I kind of held back in my mind of, you know, well, I don't know if I can do that or, you know, making excuses for myself. You know, I remember at a point, a point in time when I would say something like, oh, well, I can't do that because I'm an amputee. But now I, I never use that excuse at all. So talking about having no excuses, um, I would love for you to tell our listeners about your your adventure on the Pacific Coast. Yeah. Um, and what started that journey and what, because it wasn't just, you know, a, an ambition and isolation. You were doing it for a reason and to raise awareness. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. Um so one of my friends and I, you know, I, I had shared with her, uh, we, uh, she was my training partner. We did our first half marathon together. And as we were going through that process of training for our first half marathon, you know, I was, I was struggling a lot with my prosthesis and having, um, you know, a lot, a lot of sweat and uh, blisters and back pain. I ended up um, because I was running on, on my walking leg, I ended up going into physical therapy and, and having, you know, multiple appointments a week and was just in a lot of pain. And meanwhile, you know, her experience was that she kept improving and getting faster and, you know, not being held back because she, uh, you know, had both of her legs and was healthy and, you know, didn't have a prosthesis that wasn't necessarily working for her or designed to run. And so we really bonded and she was, you know, so supportive of me throughout that entire journey. Her name's Kathleen. And it's actually funny because before we set off down the coast, she didn't even know how to swim or bike. And I taught her. But that's kind of another another story. Um, but so we just, you know, we were kind of brainstorming, uh, you know, what can we do to raise awareness for amputees? And we kind of joked about running a across the country. And that's kind of when, you know, I thought of, of Forrest Gump and we decided to uh, coin the name Forrest Stump instead. And we really wanted to do it uh, down the West Coast, down the Pacific Coast, because we knew that we'd hit up some major cities along the way, which would allow us to talk to people 
and share our story. Um, and it had quite a bit of elevation and opportunities to do some pretty epic swims because we wanted to also not just run, but do a triathlon to really show that an amputee could uh, or uh, should, you know, have access to prosthetic technology that allows them to participate in multiple types of activities in their life. And so I wanted to show that um, you know, swim, whether it's swimming, whether it was biking or whether it's running, that I could have a prosthesis almost for each one of those. Um, and so that's when we decided, all right, we're going to do this. And that was in, in July. And we set off down the coast in September. And so it was really fast that, you know, I decided, all right, we're going to do this. I'm going to quit my job. You know, I recruited Kathleen who quit her job and then recruited my mom to drive a camper down the coast, which she had never done before. Uh, and they recruited my partner, who's a prosthetist, and uh, the four of us set off down the coast together uh, on this on this journey. And you know, I would I'd say we honestly had no idea what we were doing uh, when we set off. I mean, we we came up with the plan logistically all to, all by ourselves. We used kind of a map from Adventure Cycling uh, to kind of um, showcase or to kind of look at good bike paths so that we weren't on any major highways and we're going down the right right path. But for the most part, we came up with um, the, the whole uh, journey and logistics ourselves. And, you know, some people within the first five days um, kind of questioned whether or not we were even going to make it to the end. In my mind, I knew 100% we were going to make it because I when I set a goal, I'm going to get it done. And whatever it took, we were going to do it. But the first two days were over 100 degrees as we left Seattle, and we were riding um, uh, over 100 miles a day for those uh, couple days. Then we got to the Columbia River Gorge, which we had planned to swim across. And all of the swims that we had planned, we wanted to do um, organized swim events. But at that time, the Columbia River Gorge had caught on fire. And so there's ash coming down. Uh, the swim ended up being canceled because all of the fire crew and emergency responders were out attending to the fire. But I knew I, I was like, nope, we got to do this. Like, I, I'm going to make it happen. So we recruited um, some family and friends who had uh, some kayaks and paddle boards. And I did the swim across the Columbia River as kind of ash was falling down from the sky, which looking back on it now, you know, my lungs were burning, which probably is not the best idea, uh, but we did it. And, you know, <laughs> You're swimming through a literal hell. Yeah, exactly. Oh my it was God. on fire around us. I mean, I just thinking back on it, it's, it's incredible uh, that we, that we did that or that my mom even, that my mom even let me do that. Uh, yeah. Well, l let me go back a sec because you said you said when you put your mind to it, you knew even though people were questioning, could you do it? You you knew you were going to get done, but you've sort of glossed over a really, um, to me at least, sort of an obvious challenge that you were confronting, which is you said you know you were doing this on your everyday prosthesis. You didn't have a running right. blade, so when you were off a bike, when you were not in the water and you were running, you were doing it on an everyday prosthesis. And I ha I can relate to that in, in a very small degree because I did my very first um, 10K after my accident on my 
on my walking leg. I actually did a, a second one a year later, running leg over leg on my walking leg. And I know what that feels yeah. like. It is brutal on your body. So how did you, I mean, yes, you can say, you know, I know I'm going to be able to do this, but you already knew that you were um, putting enormous trauma and stress on your body uh, by doing the training you'd done for the half marathon prior to that. So what gave you the confidence that you were going to be able to get through this when you tack on, you're also bicycling and run and swimming on the days that you're not running? Yeah, I mean, I, that was the big thing when we when we left down the coast. Is, you know, I knew that I could get through it because I had the, the stamina and the will and the determination to do it. Really, the biggest question uh, was whether or not my prosthesis was going to survive the journey. And that was really the limiting factor that I knew that, you know, this thing could break. And right before I left Michigan to go out to Seattle to go down the coast to meet with my prosthetist in Michigan, you know, we took a look at the foot and uh, I'd only had it for about six months at that point, but had put in quite a few miles training to get ready for this. And it was already on the verge of needing to be um, you know, it, it had already had some significant wear and tear on it. And so, it, you know, from the moment we left, it was kind of a, a worry, like, is this, is this going to make it? And if it does break, what, what happens then? That was a big, it's a big question. And so, um, the foot, uh, we took a look at it about halfway through the journey and, uh, it was on the verge of a catastrophic failure. And so we ended up uh, being able to get a donated uh, foot to replace it. Um, but, you know, that was in and of itself a very unique circumstance to be able to have that donated because I was doing this and was able to, you know, get in contact with the right people. But, you know, I knew that no amputee should have to go to that length to, you know, show that they need a limb or, or need a foot. Um, and that this, that it should be covered to allow them to have access to things that allow them to be active. Really good point. So you swim across the, uh, the burning, uh, burning fire river from hell <laughs> and you, <laughs> and you continue, you continue down the coast. Now was uh, at this point, I know you've. I know that you filmed this journey, right? right? Yep. So we. Have, mm -hmm. So, talk a little bit about you again. Let's let's fill in the blanks for people. You, there's a you know you're documenting every step of this. So not only did you commit to I'm going to go do this. I'm going to quit my job. My friend's going to quit her job. We're going to make this journey. But you also somewhere along the way here, you somehow find the time to get a camera crew together and a production company and say you're going to follow us down the coast in my mom's van. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's kind of how it, it transpired. I mean, the power of Facebook, really, we posted about uh, that. We're going to do this trip down the coast. And then uh, an uh, alum uh, alumnus from the university of Michigan, we actually graduated the same year uh, was, had lived in the same uh, dorm as Kathleen. And so he reached out to Kathleen and said, Hey, you know, I'm a partner at a snow day production studio based out of New York city. I mean, this is an incredible journey and uh, thing that you guys are trying to do. And I'd love to help you guys, um, 
could, you know, make an impact and increase your ability to raise awareness by coming along and filming. And so then Kathleen put Chris in touch with me and we hit it off right off the bat. Chris is a triathlete himself. Um, and it was really a film about kind of meet the superhumans about uh, kind of the Paralympic athletes that got fil- that got Chris into film in the first place. And so Chris and I met with Kathleen over lunch and this was in July. And in a matter of a month, Chris had assembled you know, a full production crew, um, a producer. Yeah, so Chris is the director of the film, uh, had assembled a producer, a number of production assistants and a cinematographer. And they uh, rented a van, uh, which they slept out of for the time and followed us down the coast. And, you know, it was really an incredible experience, but also a very challenging one, too, because, you know, not only were we doing the miles, um, and, you know, posting to Facebook and Instagram and updating our followers and answering emails. But we were also making sure that we were getting the right shots uh, with the film crew and making sure that we uh, were you know, getting the right message together to be able to have this film um, be able to make an impact and, and raise awareness. Um, and so the name of the film is, is 1500 Miles and we're still working working on it. It's uh, in post-production now, which means we're kind of finishing things up like color and sound. And so we've got the, the rough cut together, but I'm uh, fundraising right now to, to finish it. And if, if, if our listeners want to help with that, how can they find more information about helping your fundraiser? Oh, that would be amazing. Um, my website is www.forreststump.org. And Forrest has two R's in it, just like Forrest Gump. So ForrestStump.org. And uh, there's a link on there that says 1,500 miles. And there's a link to donate. And we will, if you are on our website, we will provide a link to this through our show notes. Um, So I'm actually really interested in learning about your NAOP fellowship and what you've been doing in D.C. all summer. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, as we we took this journey down the coast, I knew that it wasn't just going to end in San Diego, but that we really needed to bring this story to D.C. And uh, so after, you know, we got back at the end of October, I ended up finding out about the the AOPA Policy Forum and the Amputee Coalition's Hill Day, and I attended both of those and really was kind of just getting my feet wet and what it was like to meet with members of Congress, um, to uh, inform them about various legislation uh, that was going on, but also realized, you know, this is a whole nother realm that I'm not familiar with and I, I need to know more uh, to really be an effective advocate. Uh, because there's, there's one thing to be able to go in to a meeting with a member of Congress uh, or their staffers and to share your story, but you've got to also be able to start linking it to the specific acts and issues that are going on. And so I realized, you know, I need to understand uh, the bigger picture here. And so I found out about NAAOP, so the National Association for the Advancement of Orthotics and Prosthetics, found out about this fellowship, inaugural fellowship that they were um, having for the summer and was so excited and ecstatic that this opportunity uh, had come about. And so I applied and submitted my application. 
and we went through uh, an, an interview process, and I found out that I had been selected, and I was so excited. And from day one, you know, NAOP's uh, mission uh, is, and um, I guess overall uh, concept behind this fellowship is, is knowing that uh, an educated advocate is the most effective advocate. And so that was something that I was really excited to embrace and take on in the fact that I'm in not only an amputee and have my own personal story, but that I needed to become educated on issues that were going on in Washington specific to OMP um, and to be able to bring that. And so uh, I set off from Seattle, packed my bags and arrived in, in DC for a 10 week fellowship and have had significant number of uh, experiences over the summer that have just been incredible. Not only to be able to have shadowed Peter Thomas, um, who is a disability lawyer and bilateral amputee, um, who's the general counsel to NAAOP. So, you know, I've attended Hill visits with him and different meetings with the VA and the DOD and, um, uh, you know, just taking our message to the Hill with that, but also had the opportunity to travel around the country to meet with various OMP clinics. Um, and professional organizations, uh, including the ONP Alliance. Um, and so kind of the, from right off the bat, uh, when I started, uh, had the opportunity to travel to Michigan to meet with Jan Stacosa, who is a prosthetist there and owns um, and runs his, his clinic. But Jan, being able to see kind of Jan's perspective uh, for prosthetics, but then also to be able to attend kind of some state-based um, policy exposure at the Capitol there in Lansing, Michigan, and uh, met up with a, a lobbyist there, Jack Schick, who's part of Karub Associates, and uh, Jack's also an amputee. And so went and, and kind of shadowed Jack and was also able to, you know, went to the House side and the Senate side at the state level and, and tried to grab people and kind of talk to them a little bit and really exposed me to how work gets done at, at, um, at the state level and kind of some differences there are with um, kind of federal stuff as well. Um, and uh, yeah. and Nicole, let me let me jump in here for a sec. There, I recall you actually sending me an email after that visit because um, you had an interaction with a state legislator, I think, who sort of pushed back at you on some of the, the arguments that you were advancing. And it, it struck me that it was it was probably the first time you'd really gotten that kind of resistance. Could you could you share with people just sort of what what the nature of that interaction was and uh, give them, you know, give them a perspective on the types of things that um, that you do run into when when uh, legislators aren't just embracing you know, the opportunity to take a picture with with a constituent who has limb loss? Yeah, definitely. Um, so really, that, that was my first experience of having some resistance. And, you know, honestly, going into that conversation, I was, you know, telling him about the fact that I partly grew up in, in Michigan and went to the University of Michigan to kind of lay the ground for that I'm, you know, a constituent or was a constituent at one point. Um, 
and kind of jumped into my story about doing the 1500 miles and that we want to try and expand access to care. And uh, his, posi his position, this is uh, Representative uh, Ned uh, Hamfield, um, was that, uh, so, and he's the, um, the chair of the uh, subcommittee for uh, Medicaid and Medicare. And so, you know, he's coming at that from that perspective, but his immediate response was, well, you know, these things are too expensive and they're lining the pockets of profits. And, uh, you know, we just kind of went through this discussion and I was you know, kind of very taken aback, um, but realized that he was kind of coming at it from a, a cost perspective and that we need to have, be able to have numbers to address those questions. And basically asked, um, you know, are other and you know nations, you know, doing this? Are they providing activity-specific devices? You know, why can't we invent something that is cheaper and you know is is one kind of one leg? You know, I, to rule them all that can do everything. And you know, my response was, well, you know, the technology has improved vastly, but we're not there yet. And so, you know, what do amputees do in the meantime? And his kind of response was, well, they should just do what you did. And, you know, which is, is not uh, a fair thing to assume that any person should have to, you know, bike and run 2,500 miles, which, you know, I failed to mention earlier as part of the story is that at the end of that incredible journey down the coast, you know, I was granted a, a running blade by the Challenge Athletes Foundation. Uh, Other and Microsoft and he's been running on that since then and I'm and just so appreciative and thankful to uh, have been able to get that. Um, but no one should have to go to that link to be able to access something uh, that allows them to run. I think there's a lot of misconceptions too about something like a running blade being advanced technology or something like vacuum suspension being advanced when really this, this type of technology has been around for a long time, and but we need to be able to, um, and since that was one of my first visits, I didn't necessarily have the right research or talking points to be able to say, you know, well, actually, there's there's research that's been done, you know, with mobility saves to show that um, providing a prosthesis, you know, saves our healthcare system dollars in the long run by having this intervention, or to be able to show that, you know, no, I mean, the cost of this do make sense because it allows people to get back into the community and start working again. So I think that was kind of a first um, introduction that there there is gonna there are gonna be opposing views and that um, based on who you talk to, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, that you might want to change the way um, change the way that you present your argument to them too. Nicole, can you? talk to us a little bit about like I know you had a ton of of amazing experiences this summer um, can you provide us kind of your top three highlights of things that you really either experiences that you had or takeaways from this fellowship opportunity yeah definitely um, I mean wow there's just so many amazing experiences uh, that happened I mean the travel um, one of one of the big ones that was a highlight for me is that I was able to uh, kind of 
get on board with a campaign that's being done by the VGM group uh, based out of Waterloo, Iowa. And uh, they're uh, advocating uh, and informing um, members of Congress about custom breast prostheses. And so although this is you know, not necessarily about uh, prosthetic limbs per se, it still kind of, it still covers under the ONP realm. And uh, for a lot of women uh, who undergo breast cancer, uh, like my mom, uh, and have to have a mastectomy, there's not a lot of options for them beyond either reconstructive surgery or really doing nothing. I mean, there, there is an option to have an off-the-shelf uh, prosthesis, but as we know, as uh, limb loss um, members, is that, you know, there's no way we could have a custom or an off-the-shelf limb or leg or arm that would fit us properly. And so it's the same thing for women who have undergone uh, a mastectomy that uh, this off the shelf uh, device just doesn't uh, doesn't work for them. And so right now, uh, custom breast uh, prostheses aren't covered under Medicare. And so this group uh, had created a campaign called Make Me Whole Again to inform that the only body part that's currently not covered under Medicare is the breast and to show the numbers in terms of, you know, how, what is the utilization, what would the utilization of this be compared to reconstructive surgery? It's actually a cheaper option. Um, it allows women to, who might feel forced into reconstructive surgery to do something that's less invasive and more uh, kind of fits their lifestyle, but also is something that's, it, that's better for them than an off the shelf product in terms of quality of life and returning to normal. And so I was able to shadow this group and really join in with them because I had this personal connection with my mom and uh, went through the process of doing a bunch of research myself. They created some incredible documents um, and did enormous amounts of research ahead of time to bring to uh, various members of Congress. And so we ended up having about 25 Hill visits over the course of three days including a, a visit with CMS, Center, Center for Medicare and Medicaid, and uh, to talk about this issue. And really, you know, many, of, most of our, or all of our visits were with staffers. And so that really gave me an insight into, you know, how, how you kind of shop around a bill. Uh, there's a specific bill that they're, they're working to get uh, introduced and, and wanting to get passed. But, you know, how you can shop it around staffers and get the conversation going but also the importance of having done your research. And I think a lot of times, you know, when people think of going to DC, they kind of think about just showing up and, you know, yelling about, you know, your problem or that's, you know, there's a lot of hype kind of involved in, in being in DC. But the more I kind of, uh, you know, peeled back the curtain and, and saw how this really happens is that, you know, like in anything, in business, in your daily job, you wouldn't just go to your boss and say, this is what's wrong and, and, and yell about it, you would say, hey, this is an issue we're having. I've done some research and here, here's a potential solution. You know, let's talk about it. And that's the same sort of thing that I was able to do uh, with this group is that we ended up going and, and kind of speaking from our own experiences, but then providing them a solution and the research to support it. So that in and of itself was an incredibly rewarding experience to be able to take part in that campaign from the ground level up. Um, and so they're continuing to work on that. 
kind of from a, another, you know, highlight that I had was meeting uh, Senator Tammy Duckworth. Um, and so she's a big uh, kind of role model and idol to me. She's a bilateral amputee, a veteran. She was the first female uh, bilateral amputee uh, to lose her limbs in the war. Um, and she's been a very strong advocate and supporter for the limb loss community. And so had an opportunity to meet with her and also to hear her speak um, at a, a rally and a celebration for the 28th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which I think is an, another incredible part of this fellowship that I can't stress enough, is that you know the amputee population you know is is one part of a much larger uh, disability community and challenges that we face, uh, you, you know, united. Um, and so I think this fellowship really uh, was able to expose me to a number of different groups and think tanks and coalitions that are working on um, disability rights and policy uh, in general, too. So to be able to kind of see the larger picture of that going on. That's really that's really a, a, an important point. And, and I'll go back one step. Nicole, uh, I, I've been lucky enough to meet Senator Duckworth as well, and she's phenomenal. I mean, she just she understands the issues, and she's uh, she's passionate about uh, making sure that people with limb loss and limb difference have appropriate access to care. Uh, so I, I know exactly what you're saying there. But I think one of the things that when Peggy and I interviewed Peter Thomas uh, a few months ago that really rang true what were his comments about the broader disability coalition and um and the ability for us to be more effective collectively on many key issues particularly when you start talking sort of macro level about healthcare in the u.s when you start talking about healthcare reform and all of those kinds of issues uh, having those relationships and being able to work effectively with other groups is is a really important aspect of advocacy because our community is too small, particularly on big issues. Uh, it's too small to, to have much of an impact by itself. I think we can be very effective on issues that affect us as prosthetic wearers. So when you talk about um, things like the 2015 local coverage determination uh, fiasco, we can be very effective there. But when you get to the bigger issues, it's it's these coalitions and these relationships with other groups that really uh, are likely to gain traction with legislators and and allow us to protect the the community as a whole, uh, the whole uh, disability community, not just uh, our our smaller Agreed. piece of that. Yeah, hundred percent. And something else I'd I'd like to add too is that um, kind of a big takeaway from the summer is how important it is to have a consumer or an amputee be the one to be part of those discussions. I mean, I think there's in a number of different instances, you know, there were conversations going around the room and, you know, a member of Congress said, wait, let's hear from someone who deals with this on a daily basis. And to be able to have someone who's an amputee and is is knowledgeable about the issues is so important because to be able to connect the dots there uh, and to be able to share your own personal story just goes so far um, in in being able to kind of tell the impact and to have our voices be heard. And so, I mean, that was the big part, big takeaway for me of this fellowship is, you know, we need to get more people 
more amputees to be able to share their stories and to be part of uh, the work that's going on in D.C. to be able to raise our voices collectively and also be part, like you said, Dave, uh, you know, with the disability community in general. Yep, fully agree, fully agree. So taking on your entire experience between uh, your Pacific Coast journey and actually going back to losing your limb as a child and your evolution going down the Pacific Coast to now completing the NAAOP fellowship, what do you think is the most worrisome or the biggest obstacle that the limb loss, limb difference community is facing going forward? That's a great, great question. Um, you know, it, I wrote up an article uh, for the ONP Edge and kind of, you know, detailed four barriers that I see as having a, a major impact for amputees moving forward that we really need to address. Um, and, you know, it's hard potentially for me to say at, the, at this point that there's just one, but there's there's a lot of different issues that are going on. And, and, you know, I kind of set out on this journey to really understand, you know, why are amputees uh, struggling to access care and the technology that they need? And so I've just been constantly asking the question why and kind of digging deeper and digging further. Um, and so kind of like the four barriers that I, that I see right now, you know, one that I alluded to uh, early on is that there's a hierarchy in prosthetic coverage that, you know, based on, uh, you know, maybe how you lost your leg or, or, or arm or when you lost it, you know, whether you're covered under private uh, commercial insurance plans or uh, Medicare or Medicaid or the VA or workers' comp or DOD, you know, I think I've covered them all there, that there's almost a, a hierarchy in terms of, you know, kind of at the bottom level most generally are people covered under commercial insurance plans and at the very top, you have uh, amputees who have lost their limb in, in the war and are covered uh, kind of part of the Department of Defense, uh, all the amazing technology that they've developed. And, you know, it shouldn't matter how or where or when you lost your limb to uh, dictate the, t the level of care you receive. And I think we need to work on... Uh, kind of leveling and, and, and be, being able to set a standard and raise a, the standard of care for amputees across the board. Um, and, you know, I think I, I kind of look back on some of the conversations that I've had over the past year and really learning more about this. Uh, and a lot of people, uh, I think, have a misunderstanding um, of who has access to what. And, it, and because of all, because each of these organizations is separate and works, um, you know, has different populations and different budgets and, you know, different departments that cover it. It is a challenging process to, to work through that. But if I've learned anything this past summer as well, I've, I've realized that there are a lot of innovative kind of programs that are going on to ch help try and bridge those divides. And so it, it can be done, you know, through policy, through internal pilot programs, through healthcare regulation, that we can work on addressing this hierarchy and prosthetic coverage. Um, you know, a second big issue that I that I see is that um, in in a great way too. I mean, the nonprofit sector has really stepped up to fill the insurance gap that we're seeing, and uh, you know, growing number of nonprofits providing 
uh, prosthetic limbs, you know, whether it be something as simple as a, as a walking leg because someone doesn't have insurance and can't get that coverage or, you know, can't pay, you know, there's an arbitrary cap or restriction that they've had on their insurance plan or their insurance says, hey, we're not, we don't cover prosthetics. They've been able to reach out to nonprofits and get those covered or for like myself having, you know, a running blade. Um, but, you know, something that we really need to dig into that while uh, nonprofits are providing uh, this access in the short term, you know, how does this translate and how do we lose out in the long run by providing care in this manner? I mean, for one, um, we're, we're, we're losing a lot of data. And, you know, if we're uh, continuing having nonprofits step up to the plate, to provide this, we're not measuring the amount of care that's being delivered through that realm, or even the the benefits that amputees are receiving from having that care provided. You know, it's clear that why people are wanting to step up is because of the amazing uh, impact that a prosthesis provides someone to be able to go from losing your limb or your arm to being able to have a prosthesis fitted and the type of uh, mobility and, and uh, kind of restoration of function and the things that you're able to achieve in your life, whether it's, you know, playing with your kids or, you know, playing softball or whatever it is that you enjoy, you know, getting back into being a very healthy and vibrant person. That's what a prosthesis does. But we need to be able to show that we need to be able to show the numbers behind that. And so, um, for example, the as I mentioned earlier, the Mobility Saves uh, program has commissioned a number of highly respected health economists and researchers, and they've done a number of studies to show that prosthetic and orthotic intervention, you know, saves our healthcare system money in the long term. And we need to be able to have more of those studies to refer to. Um, I also want to mention that you know, Hanger. Uh, is implementing a, kind of an outcome, medical outcomes program to be able to show that when, it, when an amputee and or to be able to at least measure uh, when an amputee receives a prosthesis, you know, how does their mobility outcomes increase as a result or if they're having challenges to be able to show that their mobility has decreased and that there needs to be something that can be done. So, I mean, in the short run, you know, philanthropy is definitely filling this gap. And, you know, I, I am so appreciative. I know so many other people are appreciative. But we also need to, you know, bring nonprofits on board and to, show, to have them share these numbers so that we can go to members of Congress and say, hey, look at what's, look at these shifting of costs. Look at what the nonprofit sector is having to provide in terms of health care. Because otherwise, it's just going to continue to be a slippery slope and insurance not covering more and more because we're not being able to prove that, you know, that prosthetics um, do provide this quality of life. I think that's a really interesting, I think that's a really interesting point. Um, you know, the, 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 I can see one of the challenges potentially with respect to trying to extract that data from nonprofits particularly is there's just so many and it's so fragmented. So how do you end up actually being able to intelligently and coherently gather that 
in a way I, I could see being a challenge, but it's not, it's not an issue I'd ever thought of before, Nicole. So I think that's a really insightful yeah. point. And, you know, I think the solutions to either one of these kind of barriers I put up are definitely not easy. Um, but I definitely think that at least having the conversation and, and saying that this is something that we're losing as a result that we need, that we're at least going to be a little bit more um, aware or cognizant that this is happening. And I think, there will be a way, you know, if we put our heads together, that we could find a way to present this information in, you know, a coherent and impactful manner. Right, right. So I, I, I'm going to step outside the normal Q&A here for a second because I just want to flag for our listeners that um, at, predictably um, we've had a, a minor uh, technical technical issue. So Peggy has has gotten separated from us, and she texted me saying, "Dave, keep going with Nicole and explain to people what happened." So Peggy is here in spirit now, Nicole, but not nope. uh, not here to ask you questions along the way. So with that, let me let me turn to just what your future looks like. Um, I know you've got. Um, big plans in the coming weeks and months, but talk to us a little bit. You're coming out the back end of the NAAP fellowship. You know, what are you, what are you looking to do next? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I'm so thankful for, for all that I've learned this past summer and feel like I am on the path to becoming a much more effective advocate because of all the people that, you know, were able to help and provide these incredible experiences over the past summer that, Kind of I've mentioned briefly, but it goes so far um, beyond that as well. Um, you know, from a personal standpoint, one of the things that I'm, I'm really excited to be taking on at the end of this month um, is that since receiving uh, the running blade, I've been able to significantly ramp up my training because I'm not worried about or I haven't had back pain and haven't needed to go to a physical therapist and haven't had to go back to my prosthetist to get a foot replaced. And so I've been able to really focus on training and, and moving out my goals. And so I'm going to be going to the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs uh, at the end of August. And so I'm personally really excited about that. Um, and I'm also uh, founding now uh, Forest Stump as a nonprofit advocacy organization. And uh, we'll be taking on another awareness event with the Range of Motion Project. Uh, and a number of other amputees, and we're going to be attempting to summit Cotopaxi, which is a 19,347-foot active volcano in Ecuador. And, uh, you know, a neat thing about ROMP, the Range of Motion Project, uh, is that, you know, back in 2005, you know, they were really seeing a growing need uh, for ampu of amputees having a lack of access to technology and care in Ecuador and, and in Guatemala. And so, you know, it started this movement, but what they've, what they've found too, is that they're having to expand uh, and bring back some of their resources to the U.S. because of a growing need uh, for the same thing here. And, you know, really that we've kind of taken a step back. And so I think it's really important to be able to, you know, not only see what's happening in the U.S., but to also understand what's happening globally. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, an amputee in the United States is the same as an amputee in Ecuador in terms of us both wanting to get back into our lives and have uh, a quality and to really live our, our best life. And so I'm really excited to be uh, joining other amputees in Ecuador and also ones in the U.S. We've been fundraising 
to provide uh, 100 limbs to people uh, in Ecuador through the Range of Motion Projects Clinic and uh, donated uh, feet and components. And so we're going to attempt to do that on September 28th in uh, honor of the 28th anniversary of the American uh, with Disabilities Act, the ADA. And uh, really to show and to bring awareness to the fact that you know, amputees aren't disabled by their condition, but by their lack of access to the appropriate technology and care. And so again, kind of taking on something that I've never done before, learning, uh, you know, glacier skills, taking a, a course there, we're gonna, we'll be summiting, uh, we'll be doing two training climbs that are 14,000 feet to acclimate, and then we will attempt to summit uh, Cotopaxi, which I'm really excited to do. Um, and to continue to bring our message uh, to greater to greater heights and awareness. Um, and you know, from there, uh, a big thing is getting our film done, uh, 1,500 miles, and uh, taking that on the road to film festivals, but al also personally being able to use it as a platform to be able to speak more about the issues that are going on and to really ramp up the awareness uh, of what amputees are facing in this community. And I think that's a perfect note, uh, Nicole, on which to end this. And I'm really thrilled to see you taking it easy after after a summer of hard work doing nothing, um, immediately plunging into 14 new things. But that's that's phenomenal. And, um, you know, I, I think I, I think Peggy and I would probably be interested and our listeners would be interested in catching up with you down the road a ways and seeing how some of this stuff goes. So. Um, let's make sure we stay in touch and thank you for, uh, giving us such a detailed explanation of, of both your, your entire life, but also especially about the NAAP fellowship and thanks in advance for all the advocacy and work you, you have done and will continue to do on behalf of the community. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dave, for having me on and to be able to share this and for, all of the work that you've done as well uh, with NAOP and bringing, you know, amputee, amputees uh, stories to the to the limelight. So thank you. Of course. Well, listen, you have a great day and it was good talking to you. Yeah, you as well. Take care. Bye.